Coming to you from San Mateo, California, this is Stories from the Sales Floor, the podcast that connects you with crushers of quotas, barons of the bottom line, and revenue-generating royalty. Here are your hosts, Ben Sardella, co-founder and CRO at Datanize, and Brandon Redlinger, head of growth at Persist IQ. Welcome to today's show. I am Brandon Redlinger. And I'm Batman. Oh, wait, that was last that episode. Was last. <laughs> Shit, sorry. All right, I'm Ben Sardella. There Damn we it. go. Back to reality. <laughs> you know, we, we've got another great show this week, um, and it's all about the proudest moment in your sales career. Yeah, spoiler alert, a lot of humble brags in this episode, but definitely totally justified. Yeah, totally. Our guests uh, today have decades and decades of combined sales experience, and uh, in all of those years, there are definitely some moments that really stand out. Yeah, for me, it's, uh, you know, having a podcast. <laughs> Hell yeah, with... With, uh, with oh, sorry. Having a podcast with Brandon Th- Redlinger. Thank you, thank yes, you. <laughs> yes, uh, No, lots of great moments in my career, uh, but let's let's hear from the guests this time around, and, and maybe part two, I'll share some of my proudest moments, and you'll, you'll do the same. Love it, love it. Great. So our first guest is Steve Anderson, author of Beyond the Sales Process and president and founder of PMI. Yeah, Steve believes imitation is the most sincere form of flattery and is proud when his clients decide to mirror his sales tactics. So here's Steve. In one of my um, companies before PMI, um, so before I started this sales performance company, which was 17 years ago, by the way, in one of these companies, it was well known, and this was a software-related business, that we did not have the highest rated. We, we had eight products, none of which were considered technologically uh, the best <clears throat> or most advanced, I'll say, uh, in its category. They're all pretty good, but you know, we, we did not have in any of the categories what the market would have said, this is the best that there is. Uh, the other interesting thing is that we were typically, if not the highest priced uh, provider, we were near there. And we could be pretty tough negotiating. Uh, we had been taught and trained well, and you know, it was a high stakes uh, environment, and, uh, and we executed. Uh, we thought pretty effectively. Um, the times that people bought, and I, I must admit that um, that I, I saw that happen a lot as an individual contributor, and then as a manager there. Uh, many, many times we heard people say. Well, you know, your product is missing a few things we would we would like to have, but we want to do business with you and your company, not just your company. And I, I always, uh, you know, to me, and this gets back to the comment we made earlier about relationships. I don't think customers care about relationships. I know they do. I've interviewed hundreds and hundreds of them in the role of consultant to their provider, and I believe that. When your customer tells you that they want to do business with you and your company, whether or not, okay, whether or not you have the best product, and, and by the way, give me enough engineers on a Friday afternoon, and I'll come in on Monday morning with the better product, okay? So it's almost impossible anymore to sustain product advantage very long. But when your customer makes the decision to do business with you, not because of your price, not because of your product, but they want a relationship with you and your company, that is powerful. I'll also just tell you, and this didn't happen so long ago, 
there was a situation where it was very, very competitive for my firm. And uh, without going into too many details, uh, there were more reasons for why we might not have won than perhaps reasons for why we did win. In the end, um, the comment that someone made to us, which I, I just um, I felt very good about this, and it just kind of echoes this. I'm not bragging, certainly not, but you know, the customers care about the relationship. The comment that the because uh, I asked, I asked the buyer, I said, okay, well, you know, we're certainly delighted to hear of your decision, committed to be a good partner to you. Do you mind just uh, giving us a clue what what tipped the scales one way or the other? And the comment was, well. Candidly, we looked at everybody in front of us and asked ourselves, which organization would we want our salespeople to mirror? Who would we want our salespeople to sell like? And what we decided, and this individual told me it was unanimous, I don't know, but um, in any event, what they decided was the way that we had engaged with them was the way that they wanted their salespeople to engage their customers. So. Uh, no, no single isolated uh, event or moment, but uh, but there would be a couple of examples that I choose to carry forward. And again, reinforces our belief that relationships matter and how you conduct yourself uh, with the customer can leave such a legacy for the salesperson and the salesperson's company uh, for quite a long time. Yeah, absolutely. 100% agree. I mean, we've that's something that we've been talking about lately is um, I mean, it, it's just as much how you sell than what you actually sell. So, uh, I, I could not possibly agree more, Brandon. And you know, I, I, I don't want to beat up on my uh, my colleagues in the quote sales training business. Again, we think of ourselves at PMI as first a consultancy, second a training organization. But you know, training sales training is focused. It, it, it's exactly what it claims to be. It's training to sell. Well, what Dave Stein and I believe is that if you think about a customer and you ask yourself, how long, how much time is my customer going to spend buying from me this year? Uh, and if the customer, if you just figure 50 weeks and 40 hours and just, you know, just pick a number 2,000, will your customer, Brandon, or yours, Ben, will they spend, if I'm your customer, will I spend 1,000 hours, 50% of my time buying from you? Certainly not. If you winnow this down, okay, will I spend 10% of my time? How about 200, a whopping 200 hours? If I take you to the end of, of the analogy here, uh, most people would say the customer is only going to spend 20 to 40 hours a year buying something from you. Guess what? That's 99 or 98% of their time they're not buying. Well, what are we doing? And we wonder why when RFPs show up, uh, wow, this looks like somebody else wrote it. Well, that's because they probably did or they influenced it. And so what I've evolved to very much in my thinking and client work is if we only show up, you know, when dinner is served and the smell of roast beef is permeating the room, well, everybody else uh, gets a whiff of that too, right? And that's what we call, you know, RFP going out. No, no, no. The customer knows. The customer can tell. If we're only in it for the sale, that becomes very obvious. And what we believe is that this whole idea of being engaged with the customer before, during, and after the sale, we think that's a game changer. We're seeing it with clients we work with and yeah, that, that's kind of a big part of our belief system here at PMI. All right, up next is Sally Doobie, West Coast GM of The Bridge Group. 
Yeah, and Sally is proud of the lives that she has touched as a mentor of young sales professionals. Yeah, and even when she said to let people go, I mean, she's still proud of the fact that she's got them on the right path to maybe their next rewarding venture as well. You know, I really have to say my proudest moment is mentoring my team. Um, I really like to give people a chance, help them learn, guide them, and see them succeed. So it's sort of like being a parent when you're a sales um, leader. It can be extremely frustrating as well when people don't see the constructive criticism and direct feedback um, that you're giving them um, and the nature of what you're giving them, that it's, you know, it's there to help them because you want them to succeed. And it's kind of tough when some people don't take it to heart and don't act on the recommendations. But for those that listen and take in the suggestions, they see some great success. Um, And for some, I even had to go and tell them, you know what, this isn't a fit for you. And maybe it's not the right company. It's not the right time in the company or in your career. Um, And it's time for you to move on. Because, you know, it would be better for you to move on than for me to have to let you go. But I'd rather be direct and straight with them. But it's so exciting and rewarding. And and I've had the honor of, you know, when I talk to people months later or sometimes even years later, I recently reconnected with um, a person that uh, I had managed like 20 some years ago. And we actually met up at a trade show and they came up to me and thanked me without, you know, any prompting, just, you know, I've always wanted to thank you. You really had a tremendous impact on my career. Um, and you gave me a start when others wouldn't, and you really guided me along the way, and I can't thank you enough for that. And that's just such an amazing feeling to be able to, you know, know that you, you've had that impact on people. So that's one of the things that I see as my, my greatest success and contribution. And Tibor Shanto is up next. He is the chief sales officer at Rembor Sales Solutions. Yeah, and he's proud of the fact that in one single day, he closed two counts uh, for more than a million dollars. That's not bad. That's that's pretty. Well, maybe we should do it like Dr. One million dollars. <laughs> Um, Well, there's one that's sort of simple. I wouldn't say it's proud, but it's a bragging point, but I'll tell you one that I'm proud of. I I happen to have signed uh, Xerox um, for a six-figure deal on 9-11. I remember having to drive to Rochester from Toronto and listening to things unfold on the way there, and I remember being in the parking lot at Xerox when they hit the Pentagon. Um, But for a number of reasons, you know, I figured I was there. Let's get this thing done. So I actually got a contract that day, um, 9-11, and made my way back to the border. But I would say the one that I'm proudest of, so that one gives me bragging rights, but the thing that I'm proudest of is I managed two fairly large accounts um, that both happened to be located up in Ottawa. And they were teetering and, you know, it took a lot of work. But I went up there one day. And I told my wife that it's either going to be a banner day or a terrible day. And I think between the two deals I closed that day, we were in excess of about a million dollars. So we had a good dinner that night. Yeah, that's not bad, I guess, right? Yeah, (laughs) it wasn't bad at all. And I think it was more the fact that 
the way the deals came together rather than, you know, it's always good to have the large numbers, but they were hard deals to win. And I think, you know, again, it was the execution that, that, um, allowed me to win it. So, um, you know, I think anytime you do hard work over the course of three, four, five months, if not longer, there's pride to be taken at the end if it's successful. Even if it's not, if you did the right things. And another returning guest, Nancy Blakey, and she's the president and chief sales officer at Sales Pro Insider. Yeah, Nancy had two proud moments. Uh, one, when she was named Rookie of the Year in one of her first sales jobs. And the second, when she added author to her biography. There's a, there's actually two that I that I thought of. And one was early in my career. So, I, you know, I mentioned I was a reluctant salesperson and it took me a while to embrace that sales was a great career choice and was really a role that added so much value into companies and that without salespeople selling, nobody else in the company has a job. Um, so that it's really profound. So I left corporate America and started my own firm to sell sales training as a distributor. Um, you know, that was before I had my own voice and, and all of that. And I ended up being the rookie of the year. And that was so proud because I didn't consider myself in sales for so long. And then to really be able to start and do so well at it because I fully embraced it and was um, working really hard to learn and do the right thing. So, you know, when I got to stand on that stage at that distributor conference as the rookie of the year, which I didn't know I was getting, I, I felt, you know, so I, I was just so proud that, you know what, I found my home and this is what I'm going to do for the rest of the rest of my career. And then, of course, you know, when I was approached by a publisher about writing a book, that was a really proud moment, too, because I was like, how in 15 years did I go from disdaining sales to now being thought of as a thought leader who should be published? That was a really proud moment, too. And finally, we have Rob Jepson. Yeah, Rob is the former SVP and general manager of Higher View Accelerate and has just started Xvoyant. So check that out at xvoyant.com. And that provides technology and service to help sales leaders really remove the guesswork and create a predictable, sustainable revenue through coaching. And Rob has tons of things to be proud about, uh, especially moving into the sales coaching uh, realm and dramatically improving his client's performance. But the biggest one he wanted to target here was the time when he closed a six-figure multi-year deal with a company that had zero budget. Yeah, and that's really the, just the beginning of this story. So here's Rob. You know, obviously the first big enterprise deal was a big one for me when I remember I had a boss told me that the fastest anyone had ever closed an enterprise deal was six months, and I did it in four months. Um, that was cool. Mm-hmm. Um, first time I closed a seven-figure deal was cool, but the two that stand out might be surprising to you. The first, the first one I want to tell you is, as I shifted into the world of sales coaching, your defi- definition of success is different, right? Because when you're doing things as an individual contributor, um, you're just doing stuff for you. And when I shifted into the world of a, of a sales leader, I don't know if you know this. Last year, only 44% of sales people hit their number. Oh wow! Uh, at my last. Uh, big place that I was at when I was running sales for a large team, we left with 73% of our team hitting their goal in a multi-billion dollar company. That was really, really rewarding. 
to see all nine geographies hit their goal. 73% of the salespeople hit their goal. And as a sales leader, that's so fulfilling to see that the process and the tools and all the infrastructure where you're trying to create a place where people win, it's happening. And, and you're watching careers change. You're watching people grow up. And and I'll never forget, even just what, two weeks ago, I got a call from one of my former people that I used to lead. And he said, hey, I was working on this deal with a large technology company that you would for sure know. And, and he said, they gave me this objection and, and I handled it this way. I did this, this, this. And it was this technique that we worked on a couple of years previously. It just makes you so proud. Proud that you see that you're, you're, that you're defining a legacy not by how much you sold, but by this infinite return that you can create as a sales leader. And that was super cool. Um, really one of those kind of almost like a proud dad moment. Now, my, my last one I'll share with you is an individual one that I did. It was less than a year ago. It was pretty cool. I sold when I was uh, selling the HireVue coach technology. I sold a six-figure deal to a large company that had zero budget. Um, and they had a policy that they don't do multi-year deals, a written policy. So I went from zero budget and no uh, allowance of multi-year. I sold a three-year deal, six figures a year. And the best part, no demo. I got a technology SaaS deal done with no demo, no budget, and no allowance for multi-year, and I got it all done in less than six weeks. It was pretty cool. Oh, wow. <laughs> all right, let's, let's, let's dig into that one. How, how, the, how did that happen, and what did you learn? Um, they met me because they heard me speak at Dreamforce. Okay. And um, there was a, a decent line of people wanting to talk afterwards, and he just stood on the side and let that line die down. And when the line died down, he came over and he said, are you ready to talk business now? And, um, and I said, sure. So we ended up talking and, and the reason that happened was it goes back to the lesson that I told you I learned early on that you got to be a value engineer, right? Mm -hmm. One of my, you know, Jepson's third law of sale is real simple. It says products have no value. They can only derive value. Mm. And so your, your product, nobody cares how long you've worked on it. No one cares how much R and D you spent on it. Nobody, nobody, nobody cares. And so the only thing they care about is what can it do for them? And so I teach organizations and salespeople that one of the most important skills is to dollarize or to have this value engineering conversation. And it's not ROI. ROI is a defensive tactic that everyone knows is so you can justify your cost. That's why you do it. If you, if you can, if you can um, talk about the impact of going from this situation to this situation and what it does for you before you even talk about your product, it changes things. And in this case that I'm talking about, as we were talking about sales coaching, we were able to talk about you know the percentage of their people that were hitting quota, uh, the number of products per business, what their slugging average was, what's their what, number of things like that. And and I was able to ask them, you know, how many sales leaders do you have? And they have 58 sales leaders. How many of them are good at coaching? And we, we just talked about those things. And and before we even talked about the product, we were able to come up with a really meaningful. Uh, we we're going to we we're going to create about a 15 million dollar impact if we could create a coaching culture there. And um, and so if you do that, you can identify what the impact will be before you ever do anything else. It changes things. And so you know, he's like, I said, how fast do you want to get going on this? And he's like, I, I want to go right away, but the problem is I don't have budget. By the way, that's why I love selling to sales organizations. If you're selling to like HR, if they don't have budget, you're kind of screwed. If you're selling to someone else, like a sales team, they can go get budget if they can show what it'll do for them. And that's what happened. He came back and he's like, okay, we'll do the six-figure deal, but you know, we are precluded from doing multi-year deals. And anyway, it was it was fun because uh, 
I was able to, to – he wanted to beat me up on price. And then he said, you know, that your price is too high for us since it's not budgeted. And my favorite way of handling that is since I dollarized at the beginning, I said, well, if you think that this much is too much of an investment to make a $15 million impact, what do you think the appropriate investment is for a $15 million impact? Mm-hmm. And then you shut up and look at him. And he's, and he's like, I don't even know how to answer that. I said, the way you answer it is you know that you have a good price. So I'm going to stick to it because you know this is what's going to be good for your business. The last one was he's like, I can't sign a multi-year deal. I'm just not allowed to do it. And um, so we made a couple of concessions. And I said, who is it that's stopping you from getting a multi-year deal? And he told me. And uh, I hopped on a plane and showed up in Houston and the, sat down with the person that had the, the policy problem. And we did that whole dollarizing thing. I said, let me show you what we're up against and why this is in your interest. And we went through that whole exercise. And he said, well, why won't you do a one-year deal? I said, because your pricing is contingent on you know, a multi-year deal. And I don't even want to start blowing it up because it's a bait and switch and it's not fair because I know it's not budgeted in the first place. Short version of the story, I got it all done. And still, along the way, nobody even asked for a demo. It was, it was pretty awesome. Gave some screenshots. Yeah. But the, the conversation was so compelling around the value that we were going to create. No one got hung up in the, the only people that really had to is when they did their security review. I had our security people talking to their security. And obviously, they got into it. But from the business side, we made it about something other than how the product worked. We, were, we made it about what the value would be. And it was a really, really cool experience. One of, in 21 years, still one of my top three deals that I've ever worked on. All right, that is our show for today. You have been listening to Stories from the Sales Floor, and a special thanks to our guests, Steve Anderson, Sally Duby, Tibor Shanto, Nancy Blakey, and Rob Jepson. And, of course, another thanks to our executive producer, Joe Vignolo. Follow us on Twitter at SFTSF Podcast, and for more content and info on how to connect with our guests, head over to salesfloorstories.com. And if you like what you've heard today, head on over to iTunes and hit subscribe. And if you really like what you've heard, go ahead and leave a review. It'll help Ben's ego. Also check out our services. Visit datanize.com to find the perfect prospects at the right time. And to be more effective at following up with those prospects, check out PersistIQ.com. I'm Brandon Redlinger. And I'm Ben Sardella. We'll see you next time on Stories from the Sales Floor. And don't forget, share my shit.